grab a Bible, open that Bible to Psalm 23, 23rd Psalm. There's an outline in the bulletin. You can follow along with the notes. It'll also be up on the screen. I mentioned that Hunter preached last week. Two weeks ago, we looked at Psalm 109, and I told you when we started the morning in Psalm 109 that I had been dreading that Sunday because it's just such a difficult passage, such a weighty passage and a hard passage to think through. And to be completely honest, I've also been dreading this Sunday for completely different reasons, not because it's a hard passage, not because you're unfamiliar with it, not because it's difficult to work through or to think through, but because you're very familiar with it. And when we think that we know something, sometimes we have trouble hearing it. When we think we know what a story in the Bible says, sometimes we have trouble reading it and and hearing what God is really saying to us in it. The 23rd Psalm is sort of like the star-spangled banner, right? You know it. If I put it on right now, which I'm not going to do, you could hum along with it. You could sing along with it. You know the words. You've sung it many, many times at sporting events or different Uh, events that you have been to. You're familiar with it. You know it. However, if I asked you to come up on the stage and to sing our national anthem, we would see how well you really know it. A couple years ago, I was in Tanzania. We were teaching some students at Zingibari Primary School And we were doing some Q&A about the United States sort of leading up to where we would share the gospel with these kids. And one of the students said, "Uh, sir, would you please sing your national anthem? I thought, I don't know if you want me to do that. But they insisted. So I sang the national anthem. It's the only time I've ever sung it publicly. And uh, I thought that was terrible. I was nervous and I was sweaty and I wasn't good. And I got done and then it got worse because you know what they said next? Will you explain it to us line by line? I don't know how easy that's going to be. Look, the 23rd Psalm is kind of like that. You think you know it. You could sing along with it. You could read along with it as we read it in just a minute. Some of you may even say, you know, I bet you I could stand up and just, I've got it memorized. I could say it no problem, easy. But I'd be willing to bet that if we put most of you on the spot and you got up here, you could get the first couple of words right, but then you'd start to say, uh, what's, that, what's that next part? Or you'd leave something out on accident or you'd get something out of order. And then if I said to you, could you explain it to us line by line, we'd have difficulty doing that. We know it, we've said it, we can recite it, but actually explaining what it means is more difficult. And then if I said to you, What does the 23rd Psalm have to do with Jesus? Maybe we'd be at a loss again to say, I I don't really know. I've heard it at funerals. I've heard it at different occasions, but I don't know how it points us to Jesus. And so hopefully this morning we're going to talk about all of those things. Hunter mentioned this last week. We are now in the trilogy of the shepherd. And Psalm 23 is the second psalm in this trilogy of the shepherd. And so Just to be clear on this, there's three passages in the New Testament that describe Jesus as our shepherd. First one is in John 10, the next one is in Hebrews 13, and the last one is in 1 Peter 5. Interesting, when you study the scriptures, that these three 
passages in the New Testament, John 10, Hebrews 13, 1 Peter 5, correspond very neatly with the big ideas in Psalm 22, 23, and 24. So last week, Hunter talked about Psalm 22, the good shepherd laying down his life for the sheep, John 10 and Psalm 22. This morning, I'm going to talk about God providing for his people, the shepherd providing for his sheep. And we're going to see it in Psalm 23. And you can go later and read in Hebrews 13 that talks about God supplying everything that you need through Christ. Next week, we're going to look at Psalm 24. Nick ties in with 1 Peter 5, talk about our good shepherd returning for his sheep. But this morning, we're in Psalm 23. And there's a few things I want you to know before we jump in. First of all, this may surprise you, but I think it's interesting. The kings and the gods of Babylon and Mesopotamia and Egypt were often described as shepherds. What you're reading in Psalm 23 is not like somebody pulled some new idea completely out of thin air and made up a new idea about God. The point of Psalm 23 is not to say, here's something you need to know about God that maybe you didn't know before. The point of Psalm 23 is David saying, among all of these kings and all of these rulers and all of these little g gods, all of these idols who claim to be a shepherd, verse 1, the Lord is my shepherd. L-O-R-D, all caps. Yahweh is my shepherd. Not Baal, not Pharaoh, not the king of this nation or the God of this people, but Yahweh, the God of Israel, is my shepherd. That's the big idea that we're really working off here. Psalm 23 is an individual psalm of trust. There's something interesting about Psalm 23 that you may have never noticed. Pay attention when we read it here in just a minute. When David writes these words and we read these words, we're not asking God for anything. In almost all of the psalms, there's a plea, there's a request, there's a petition of some kind. The psalmist is asking God to do something or to provide something. And when you come to the 23rd Psalm, it's a psalm of trust. David's not asking for anything. He's simply coming to God in prayer, affirming and stating his faith. And I just wonder how often we pray like that. I don't want to put you on the spot and make you feel guilty, but I'll put myself on the spot and make myself feel guilty. Most of the time when I pray, it's because I need God to do something for me or to give something to me or to help me in some way. And that's okay. The Bible has plenty of examples where people come to God asking for things. But there's also examples where people come to talk to the Lord. They don't ask for anything. They just simply come to affirm who he is and to affirm their faith in him. And that's what you see in Psalm 23. And it's an individual psalm of trust, meaning some of the psalms we've looked at have a note that says, to the choir master. This is for the congregation to sing when they're gathered together. That's not the focus in Psalm 23. There's a place for worshiping together and thinking about our relationship with God. But there's also a place for worshiping alone and thinking about your relationship with God. And that's what David's doing here in Psalm 23. Two more notes of interest. Traditionally, it's provided great comfort for those suffering or near death. My guess is you've been to a funeral where somebody has read this psalm. 
Typically, when I preach a funeral service, if we go out to the graveside, I almost always read the 23rd Psalm and talk about how it connects to what the New Testament says about Jesus as our good shepherd. Lastly, Charles Spurgeon called Psalm 23 the pearl of Psalms. It's the most famous passage in the book of Psalms, maybe one of the most famous passages in all the Bible. And so there's some background. We're going to read it, and then we're going to talk about what this psalm teaches us about the shepherd. So you follow along as I read Psalm 23. A psalm of David. The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. He makes me lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside still waters. He restores my soul. He leads me in paths of righteousness for his name's sake. Even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil, for you are with me. Your rod and your staff, they comfort me. You prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies. You anoint my head with oil. My cup overflows. Surely goodness and mercy shall follow me all the days of my life, and I shall dwell in the house of the Lord forever. Let's pray. Father, we're grateful for these beautiful words that David wrote and that you inspired through your Holy Spirit. We believe that they are just as true today as they were when David wrote them. We believe that they have power to change the way that we think and the way that we live and the way that we relate to you. Father, help us this morning to see Jesus, our good shepherd, in this passage and to understand who he is and all that he does for his people. We love you and we pray in Jesus' name, amen. Very simply this morning, we're gonna talk about five truths from Psalm 23, all of them about the good shepherd. The shepherd being described here. If you've heard a sermon on Psalm 23 before, I'm willing to bet, or maybe you've heard a Sunday school lesson on it, I'm willing to bet that the teacher or the preacher talked a lot about sheep and how stupid they are and how dumb they are and how needy they are and all the bad things about sheep. I just want to point out to you, not that those sermons or those lessons are bad, The focus in Psalm 23 is on the shepherd and what he does for his people. The focus is not really on the sheep. And so I could go through the list of things that you know and you can look them up and find them. This is information that's easy to come by. A sheep, they need this and they need that and they don't like this and they don't like that and you have to be careful. You can find all that stuff. That's just not the emphasis. It's just not the focus in Psalm 23. The focus is on the shepherd and what he provides for his people and what he does for his people. And so that's going to be our focus this morning. Five truths. Here's the first one. The good shepherd of Psalm 23 is Jesus of Nazareth. And I could have just put Jesus. I could have put Christ. I could have put Jesus Christ. But I put Jesus of Nazareth just to emphasize his humanity. To emphasize the fact that there was a man who walked on this earth with flesh and blood who was the shepherd that we're reading about in Psalm 23. This is interesting because when you look at verse one, it's unmistakably clear that David is saying, Yahweh, the Lord in all caps, Yahweh is my shepherd. My shepherd is not the the God of this nation or the king of that country. My shepherd is the Lord, the one and only true God. 
He is my shepherd. God is my shepherd. Yahweh is my shepherd. When you realize what David is saying, you understand how scandalous it was for Jesus of Nazareth, the son of a carpenter, to walk into the temple and to talk to the Jews who knew the 23rd Psalm and to look them in the eye and to say, I'm the good shepherd. I'm him, the good shepherd standing right in front of you. You realize every one of those Jews standing in that temple court would have thought, this guy just committed blasphemy right in the temple. They knew Psalm 23. They knew that it said, Yahweh is my shepherd. And here comes a carpenter from Nazareth walking into the midst of the most holy place in Israel and he has the audacity to say, Psalm 23, it's about me. I'm the good shepherd. It was scandalous. In the Jewish people's eyes, it was blasphemous. What Jesus is saying is, I'm God. I'm the Lord. I'm the good shepherd of Psalm 23. Now look, as I look around the room, I know a lot of you guys, and I think, you know, you grew up in church, you've been in church a long time. Sometimes when we are churched people, we forget how radical some of the things are in this book. We just sort of take it for granted. We say, oh yeah, we believe that. Jesus is God. This has been a big debate in our house lately. Uh, Our two little girls are five and six and they've really been trying to wrap their mind around the Trinity. And so we've had lots of talks about God is Jesus, Jesus is God. How does that work? What's going on? And they don't really question it. They're just sort of trying to get their arms around it a little bit. Just think about how ridiculous this sounded to these Jews that the carpenter from Nazareth said he was Yahweh, right in front of them. I promise you, when you share that truth with an unbelieving world today, it's every bit as offensive now as it was then. To look people in the eye today in all of our tolerance and pluralism and all these different religious and spiritual ideas floating around and to say, you know what? There was a man from Nazareth walked on this earth he's God and there is no other and all the little ideas or images or statues or thoughts about God that you have floating around in your head they're all wrong because he's the only one listen it was scandalous when Jesus said it in the temple in Jerusalem and it's scandalous when you say it today but this is what we believe as Christians we believe Jesus when he said I am the good shepherd And we understand David saying, Yahweh is this shepherd. So the good shepherd is Jesus of Nazareth. Second, the good shepherd provides for his people. Verse 1. The two phrases in verse 1 are connected in an important way. Statement, the Lord is my shepherd. Semicolon. Therefore, because that's true, in light of this statement that's fact, Because the Lord is my shepherd, there's nothing that I want. I lack for nothing. I have absolutely everything that I need. Verse 2, he makes me lay down in green pastures. That's where the sheep would eat. He leads me beside still waters where the sheep would drink. It's no coincidence that when you turn to Matthew 6, Jesus says this. Don't be anxious saying, what are we going to eat? What are we going to drink? 
What are we going to wear? The Gentiles seek after these things. Your heavenly Father knows that you need them all. This is the good shepherd just echoing Psalm 23. He leads me beside the grass and the water where I can eat and drink. And Jesus says the same, the same thing in the Sermon on the Mount. You're going to be provided with what you need to eat and what you need to drink. You don't have to worry about these things. The good shepherd provides for his people. I don't want to put you on a guilt trip about the fact that you were born in the United States of America because you're here because God wanted you here. God wanted you to be born in a third world country. He would have had you be born in a third world country. But you do need to understand that when we talk about this idea that the good shepherd provides for his people, that's kind of hard for us in this country to really wrap our arms around and wrap our minds around the significance of that. We have so much here. We live in a land filled with storage units. We have so much Most of us operate day-to-day on sort of self-sufficiency mode. Most of us really don't wake up thinking, where's the next meal coming from? Where's lunch coming from? Where's dinner coming from? I don't know where it's coming from. That thought has not once crossed my head. And my guess it's probably never or very rarely crossed yours. Jesus is saying, the good shepherd will provide everything that you need. You will lack nothing. You and I get confused sometimes on wants and needs. You know that. There's an awful lot of things we think we need that really are just wants. There's a lot of things in our lives that we don't have that we think, if I just had fill in the blank, I'd be a little bit more secure, I'd be a little bit more happy, I'd be a little bit more content. And look, for most of us, it's not some wild, crazy thing way out there. It's just a little bit more just had a little bit more. I just need a little bit more. And if you're like me and you have a tendency to think that, I just need a little bit more. I just need one more. I just need a tiny bit more. This psalm is saying, Jesus will give you everything you need. If you don't have it, you don't need it. And if you don't have it, don't get so wrapped up in thinking having it is going to make you happy. It's not, because you're going to get it, and then you're going to want that. The good shepherd provides for his people. He gives us everything that we need. Number three, the good shepherd protects his people. Verse four, even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil. Why? Because you're with me, and because your rod and your staff, they comfort me showed you a picture before of my dad's dad, my granddad. That's him on the right. He was in the Marines. And uh, my dad's dad and his mom divorced before I was born. And then sort of a funny story, I'll tell you some other time, they got remarried after Brooke and I got married. They had never remarried anybody else. They were divorced for a period and got remarried. And uh, before they got remarried, while they were still divorced, my granddad lived in Chicago. And he lived on the very block that he grew up on. And it was neat to, to walk up and down the block with him because he said, my aunt lived here and my uncle lived here and my grandma lived here and we lived here and now he lived on the corner. Old, old neighborhood of row houses in, uh, in downtown Chicago. And one summer I got to go visit him. 
When I went to visit him, he was working. He was retired from the military, retired from his career, and he was head of security at, at the time, called Comiskey Park. I think it has a new name now, but it's where the White Sox play baseball. And uh, he took me down one night. There was no game, nobody down there. He said, let's just go down and walk around. I'll give you the tour. And so we walked everywhere. We went in the owner's office. We went on the field. We went in the bullpens, in the dugouts, all over. And uh, it was just a neat time walking around, seeing the, the park. And when we got done, it was really late. It was really dark. It was about 11 o'clock at night. And I thought he would say, okay, we're going to catch a bus and go back to my house. It was a couple miles away. Or we're going to catch the, the train and go back to my house. And instead, we got done, and he went to his locker where he worked, and he opened his locker up, and he pulled out two baseball bats. And I said, hey, this is great. Behind-the-scenes tour and a souvenir baseball bat. He said, no, 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 this is not a souvenir. This is for the walk home. I said, it's 11 o'clock at night. This is not the nicest neighborhood I've ever been in. And your house is not in the nicest neighborhood I've ever been in. We're just going to walk home? Yeah, but we got these. So here you go. One for me, one for you. He took one, and I took one, and we started walking. And look, a baseball bat's better than nothing. But when you're walking through neighborhoods and gunshots are going off, a baseball bat isn't much comfort. I kind of wanted something else or someone else. But my granddad, he was tough. He was a Marine, and he thought he could whip anybody and everybody, and a baseball bat just put him over the edge. He didn't need the baseball bat, but with a baseball bat, he could take anybody, hit those bullets right out of the sky with that bat, just knock them out of the way. He was not worried one bit. We were walking home. I was terrified. I am not exaggerating when I say to you there's gunshots going off all around us, and we're just walking home. Two very white guys down the mean streets of Chicago. We made it. Did you see what he says in Psalm 23? Your rod and your staff, they comfort me. Shepherd's staff, you know what that looks like. And a rod is just sort of a mini baseball bat. And David says, I'm comforted by the fact that my shepherd has weapons. In an age and a day with guns and missiles and nuclear weapons, a staff and a rod may not be very comforting to you. But here's what David is saying in his language, in his culture, in his time. The good shepherd will fight to the end for his people. He will protect them. If you've bought into the popular idea of Jesus being some laid-back hippie walking around with flowing robes and long blonde hair and flashing peace signs at everybody, that may not comfort you very much. You may say, I really want someone else. Could I get Samson fighting for me? Could I get one of David's mighty men fighting for me? But you understand the one who promises to fight for you is the same one who walked into the temple... And not only did he say to them, have the courage to say to them that he was the Lord, Yahweh, but when they're selling and trading animals in the temple and making a mockery of the worship that was supposed to take place there, he walked into the middle of all of them with a homemade whip and started flipping tables and beating people with the whip. He'll fight for you. If that's not encouraging enough, you should go this afternoon and read Revelation 19. This says, when the good shepherd comes back, which we'll talk about next week, 
When he comes back, he's going to be riding a war horse. His robe will be dipped in blood. He will have a sharp two-edged sword coming out of his mouth that he will use to slay the false prophet and the beast and all those who dwell on the earth, believe, people living on the earth who are not believers. He'll fight for you, and he'll protect you. And you've got to understand, as I look around the room, I think about some of you guys, and I think about some of the things that you're dealing with in life. Some of you are saying, I really feel like I could use some protection right now. I feel like this shepherd is not really making the rounds in my life like he ought to to protect me from something. I just want to remind you, if your circumstances are not what you would have them be this morning, don't think for a second that Satan has somehow snuck one past the good shepherd. It doesn't work that way. The book of Job tells us it does not work that way. Psalm 23 says, even through the valley of the shadow of death, in the darkest, scariest, worst moments of your life, he will fight for you. And if he's letting it happen to you, it's no accident. It's not somehow out of his control, but he's letting it happen to you ultimately for your good and his glory. And you say, well, explain to me how this can be good. I can't explain it. I can't give you an answer for every circumstance you're facing that is unpleasant. What I can say is that the good shepherd wants you to trust him to protect you. He does not want you to trust in your comfort or your circumstances that don't need protecting. The good shepherd protects his people. Number four, the good shepherd provides for and protects for his glory and our good. This is why he does it. And the order matters. First, for his glory. Second, for our good. And they go together. They're not two different things, God's glory and our good. They're the same. They work together, but the order matters. He does it for his glory first and for our good second. Look at the second part of verse three. It says, he leads me in paths of righteousness. Why? For his name's sake. He leads me in paths of righteousness for his name, for his fame, for his glory, for his reputation, so that he gets the credit. It's good for me, but it's ultimately for his glory. You've got to somehow wrap your mind around the fact that the most important thing to God in the entire world is his own glory. You try to make sense of the Bible, putting yourself as the most important thing to God, you can't make sense of it. You just, it's like beating your head up against the wall. You can't put all the pieces together. But when you open your eyes and you realize the most important thing to God is his glory. People knowing the truth about who he is and what he's like, everything in the Bible begins to fall into place and make a little more sense. Just as one example, you can look in the book of Ezekiel. The book of Ezekiel talks a lot about God judging people and a lot about God saving people. And over and over and over again, it comes back, whether he's judging or whether he's saving, it's so that he gets the glory. Here's one example from Ezekiel 36. I don't know how this could be any more plain, by the way. It is not for your sake, O house of Israel, that I am about to act but for the sake of my holy name. If God wanted to make that more clear, I don't know how you would do it. I'm about to do something, and it's not for you, 
it's for me. What are you going to do? He says, well, you've profaned my name among the nations to which you came. I will vindicate the holiness of my great name, which has been profaned among the nations, in which you have profaned among them. And when I vindicate my name, when I do what I'm about to do, judging your enemies and saving you, the nations will know that I am the Lord, declares the Lord God, when through you I vindicate my holiness before their eyes. It's not for your sake that I'm going to do it. It's for my sake. Listen, when God blesses his people, when he blesses you, he doesn't just do it so that you can have nice stuff or be comfortable. He does it so that you, you love not the gift, but the giver. And when God judges people, when he pours out his wrath on people, he doesn't do it just to be mean and scary. He does it so people will know the holiness that's wrapped up in his name. In both of those situations, whether God is blessing people or judging people, the most important thing is his own glory. It's not for your sake that I'm about to act. It's for my sake. I'm going to vindicate my name. Look, the good shepherd says the same thing in the Sermon on the Mount. Don't worry about all the stuff. What you need to do is seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness. All the other stuff's going to be added to you. Your focus needs to be the kingdom of God and his glory and his holiness. That's your focus. Why? Because that's his focus. He provides and he protects for his glory and for our good. Lastly, the good shepherd is abundantly gracious. Verse 5 and 6. This has gone way beyond providing food and water. He says, you prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies. You anoint my head with oil and my cup overflows. An overflowing cup is wasteful. But that's the abundance he's pouring out. My cup overflows. Surely goodness and mercy shall follow me all the days of my life and I shall dwell in the house of the Lord forever. Some of you may have flown through LaGuardia Airport in New York City. It's named after the mayor of New York City, Fiorello LaGuardia. He was mayor during the Great Depression and there's a great story told about his life. At the time, the courts in New York City were so busy, they held night court in most of the courts all night long. And one night, cold winter night, is walking through the streets and he comes up to one of the night courts and he was uh, qualified to sit in as a judge. And so he walked into this night court and he dismissed the judge, let him go home and he said, I'll, I'll do your work the rest of the night. And so he sits down and he begins hearing cases that are brought before him in this night court. And before long, they bring in this homeless woman. And this homeless woman being drugged into this night court middle of the Great Depression by a shopkeeper. And the shopkeeper says, this woman stole a loaf of bread out of my shop. I want her punished to the full extent of the law. Throw the book at her. I can't have people coming into my shop and stealing bread. You know how times are. So LaGuardia listens to the shopkeeper and he listens to the woman and she doesn't have much to say other than I took it, I needed it. And so he sits on the bench and he thinks for a while and he says, okay, here's what we're gonna do. I'm gonna find this woman the maximum fine for stealing this amount that she stole. At the time, it was 10 bucks. Doesn't sound like much to us, but we're talking a long time ago, Great Depression. I'm gonna fine you $10. And the woman just sort of laughed at that and said, I don't have $10. And LaGuardia said, I know you don't. And he reached into his pocket and he pulled out 10 bucks and he paid the fine. 
said, there you go. I find you and your fine has been paid. And then he looked at everybody sitting in the night court and he said, all of you are now going to be fined a quarter. I'm fining you a quarter because you have contributed to and you live in a city where a homeless woman has to steal bread to eat. So pass the plate or the bucket or the shoe or the hat or whatever we got to do, everybody's chipping in a quarter. And they passed it around and they collected all this money. And this woman who stole a loaf of bread walked out of night court, her $10 fine paid and 47 bucks in her pocket. Now I listen to that story. This will tell you a little bit about my personality. And I say, okay, the $10 fine, you paying the fine, that, that's pretty nice. I like that. I don't want to chip in a quarter for a thief. I don't want to have to pay for somebody else's mistake. You understand, that's what grace is, right? Someone else paying for your mistake. Somebody giving you the opposite of what you really deserve. Not only paying your debt and getting you back to even, but getting you all the way to where you need to be. Look, when the 23rd Psalm says, you prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies, we've gone way beyond green pastures. Not only is he providing what you need, but he's giving you way more abundantly than what you need. And when he says, my cup overflows, we're not just talking about still waters and providing what you need, but he's saying, I'm giving you way more better and way more abundantly than what you ever need or deserve. And the point of this passage, when you get down to the end, verse 5 and 6, is to say, look, it's one thing to know that the good shepherd will provide for your needs. It's another thing to know that he is abundantly, wastefully, extravagantly gracious to his people. And he gives them the exact opposite of what they deserve. He gives them far more than what they need. Look, this is a picture of what Jesus did for us on the cross. Hunter talked about it last week. Psalm 22, John 10. The good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. Why? Just to sort of do something nice? No. To pay our fine. And to purchase every good thing in your life. You understand that at the cross, Jesus purchased every good thing that you enjoy in life. All that God owes you is instant and immediate and eternal damnation. That's all he owes you. Anything you get better than that, anything you get that's an improvement on that situation is a blood-bought gift. Bought when the shepherd laid down his life for the sheep. It's extravagant, abundant grace. And it's what the good shepherd is offering you today. And when you accept that gift, when you turn from your sin and you trust in the good shepherd and you live your life for his name, for his name's sake, for his glory, here's the confidence you can have. Verse 6. Surely goodness and mercy shall follow me all the days of my life and I will dwell in the house of the Lord forever. Let me pray for you. Father, we're grateful for this psalm, for the beauty of it, for the hope of it. We come to you today just as David did, not asking for anything, just thanking you for who you are, thanking you for what you have done for us through Christ. Father, in praying 
that you would open hearts and open eyes to the truth, that you would save people in this room, not for our sake, but for your sake, for your glory, for your fame, for your reputation. Father, what a great hope that you have given us in your word, a great hope that you've given us in this psalm. We acknowledge Jesus as our good shepherd, and we put all of our hope and our trust in him. Father, be honored as we sing to you, as we affirm our faith in you, as we declare that your word is true and lasting and eternal and unchanging, and that your promises never fail, that you're faithful. Father, we pray in the name of the good shepherd, Jesus. Amen.